Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning this morning. The title of my message is Don't Eat Your Seed Corn. Amen? Amen. Don't eat your seed corn. Now, this morning, Kelly, uh, before we were walking out the door, she said, I read the passage that you're going to be in today, and it was really interesting. What's the name of your title? I said, Don't Eat the Seed Corn, and she went. So hopefully by the end of this message, you will understand why that is the title. We're going to be in John chapter 12, beginning with verse 20, and we're going to go to verse 26. And as as you are turning there... I want to begin by asking you a question. What are you dying for? What are you dying for? Now, usually we ask that question in the positive. What are you living for? But this morning, um, I want to ask it in the negative. What are you dying for? And because God made us finite creatures, when he designed us, He made us in such a way that you can't serve two masters, right? Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus says that. You can't serve two masters. We are finite beings. That means, listen, you can't do it all. And you can only live for one thing at a time. So as you're living for something, it means that you're having to die to something else. My question to you this morning is, what are you dying for? Uh, An example of this would be those of us who are students or those of us who are studying for an exam. Anybody in here that can relate to that? Nobody? Okay, okay. You know, if you're going to make good grades, when I was in college, if I was going to make good grades, I had to die to some things. I had to die to sleep because I would study the night before and stay up all night, all night. I would have to die to watching TV. Sometimes I would have to die to my social life in order to make sure that I made good grades for something greater. When I was in middle school, I was in the marching band. Um, I used to play the trumpet. When I got to high school, I played a sport that I don't, don't like to talk much about. But I had to make a choice. I'm either going to be in the marching band or I'm going to play this other sport. All right? I'm not going to tell you what sport that is. But I had to die to one of them. I couldn't do both of them. We typically die to the things that we think are going to bring us life, don't we? November 23rd. Who knows what November 23rd is? Black Friday. I'm not, I don't know if you're one of these people, but there are people who die to themselves and they set up tents outside of Best Buy and Walmart and all these facilities because they think something in the store will bring them more life if they will die to themselves and camp out. We often die for the things that we want to obtain or the things that we love. And every day we make calculated choices. Whether it's conscious or subconscious, 
you make calculated choices to move towards things that you think are going to bring you life. And in doing so, though, you are dying to other things. You have to die to live. And my question to you this morning is, what are you dying for? Listen, you can even be a couch potato that is living in your parents' basement. Now, I don't know why we always call it that, say that you're living in your parents' basement, but that's, always, that's the way you always phrase it. So some of you here may be this person, but your parents ain't got a basement, and you're thinking, he ain't talking to me. Okay, I'm talking to you, though, okay? <laughs> you're lazy. You could work. But you won't. You think that getting a high score on Fortnite is going to bring you life, right? Don't agree with me. (laughs) So in that case, you are living for pleasure, okay? And you're dying to being responsible. You're dying to investing in the life that God has given you to live a productive life. You are living to something, and you're dying to something else. And so this morning, as we get into our passage, Jesus will be addressing the topic of living and dying. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that Jason Stuckey preached on the triumphal entry of Jesus. Jesus, in our passage as we've been moving through the book of John, Jesus is going to Jerusalem for the final showdown He has ridden in to Jerusalem on a donkey, and as he is making his triumphal entry, the crowds who have heard of the miraculous things he has done, they come out screaming, Hosanna, which means save us. We are being oppressed. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The people are looking for a savior, just like you are, just like I am. They were looking for a savior savior to save them primarily from the military power of Rome. They wanted to be saved, and, and they're thinking that he's finally come. The only problem is they were missing the bigger picture, just like I usually do, right? I usually don't know what God is doing in my life until I turn around and go, oh, that's what he was doing. And the people are missing it. Although they're calling him the king, they're looking for the wrong kind of king. They didn't understand that they needed their sin to be paid for before being set free from a military power. You know, the world still doesn't get that. The world still does not understand that their greatest problem is sin, to be set free from our sin. And you know, Jesus' enemies in, in verse 19, the Pharisees, they're freaking out. Because the crowds are all in an uproar, and they say, look, the world has gone after him. And so the city is stirred up as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and that's where we're going to pick up in our text. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at John 12, beginning with verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, were some Greeks. Now, these Greeks are obviously non-Jews. They are Gentiles who probably had been converted to Judaism. But notice that John is pointing this out, that there are Greeks who are at the feast. In other words, Jesus is beginning to attract not only Jews, but also Gentiles. This is the first view into how the gospel is going to break out to us eventually. 
but they're drawn to Jesus. And indeed, the world is beginning to go after him. Verse 21, it says, So these came to Philip, these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, remember, Jesus had recently raised Lazarus from the dead, and his fame has spread throughout the region. And so there's no doubt that they had heard about what Jesus had done. He had earlier opened the eyes of a blind man. They're just like us. They're just like us. They want to see glory. They want to see someone that's powerful and and glorious. And so they come to Philip and Andrew and ask that, and Philip and Andrew go to Jesus. And it's interesting what Jesus says to them in verse 23. And he answered them, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now what do you think the disciples were thinking when they heard that? There is not a doubt in my mind that what was going through their minds was glory. Their glory. Because their lives were attached to Jesus. And they're thinking, yes, finally, because throughout the book of John, chapter 2 and chapter 7, Jesus says, my time is not, the hour has not yet come. But he's not saying that now. He says, the hour has come. And I believe that the disciples are thinking about their glory as it is attached to Jesus's, primarily because in Matthew 19, 28 through 29, this is what Jesus said to them. Truly, truly, I, truly, I say to you, In the new world, or in the kingdom of God, or in heaven, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Right there, see that? Where the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. He's showing that he is going to be a king that has military power. You who have followed me, you who have what? Followed me. Not just anyone, but you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And every, this is good right here. Pay attention to this. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. I think the disciples are like, yeah, baby, that's what I'm talking about. The hour has come. Power, fame, glory, heaven on earth. It's time. Let's do this, Jesus. They're excited until verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you. I think Jesus is saying, okay, you get the glory part, but look, truly, truly, Don't miss this part. And this is the part that we tend to want to skip over. So Jesus is saying to us, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is saying, before glory comes death. That kind of puts the brakes on everything, doesn't it? What are you, what are you talking about, Willis? <laughs> and there, 
There is a saying among wise farmers. They say, don't eat your seed corn. Say that with me. Don't eat your seed corn. Now, what does that mean? Well, whenever farmers are harvesting their crops at the end of a harvest, they've got to be careful that they don't eat everything. Otherwise, next year they won't have any seed to plant. So you've got to set aside what's called seed corn. Now, I don't know anything about wheat, but I do know something about corn. Okay? Now, before I get into this, I'm going to tell you something. This illustration I know is corny. Okay? Yeah, I said it. But I thought to myself, oh, shucks, I'll do it anyway. <laughs> Come on, somebody. Now, when I... <laughs> Some of y'all try not to laugh, but that is hilarious. Y'all are like, thank you. Amen. Thank you, Scotty. All right, back to the illustration. We would grow corn in our backyard, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, Garden, yes. How many of you guys did that back in the day, right? I hated it. I mean, I just hated it because we'd have to get up in the morning and pull weeds and all this. But anyway, corn would grow. And something that's very interesting about corn or or any vegetable is that we would plant uh, what is known as a kernel. But the kernel would not be like this. If you plant seed, it has to be dry and dead, right? And, and, And the fascinating thing about seeds is that you can, uh, you, you take this, and actually if I just hang it here for a few months, it'll dry out, and next year we can take it and plant seeds with it, uh, plant corn with it. What's interesting about this is that seed has to be dried and dead, most seeds, before they can be planted and produce another crop. If you eat it all at one time, it's gone and there's nothing left. And it's interesting that, that, you, would, that you would take if you can take a, one of these dried pieces of corn that could sit on a shelf by itself for years and not produce anything, you take that seed and you put it into the ground, put water on it, it gets transformed into something that it wasn't. And life comes from death. And then it bears much fruit. One kernel has the potential of producing two ears, two ears, and on those ears there are uh, average of about 800 kernels, 800. So that's 1,600 kernels that one piece can produce. You know if you get to the next generation of seeds, like grandpas, if this seed becomes a grandpa? You know the potential it could do if all these seeds died and, and reproduced? 2,560,000 kernels. You know what the next generation is? I don't either because I don't know that big of a number. I can't get past million. I start doing zillion and kabillion. But the point is, it is amazing how from one seed, life can be spread. But if it sits up there on the shelf by itself, Jesus says, it remains alone. And Jesus, he comes to earth and he, he leads the way in this. He says, follow me, do what I do. So what did he do? He died and was buried into the ground. But then he was germinated, right? And came back to life and was raised back to life. And look at all the fruit of what Christ's life 
has produced for those who he died to save. Jesus gave us that example. He says, there's glory, but before you get the glory, you got to die. And he's inviting every one of us, myself included, to enter into that glory. But first, we must enter into death. Verse 25, he says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must what? If anyone serves me, he must follow me. What does that mean to follow Jesus? That means to follow his example. Do to others what he has done for us, right? That's what it means to follow him. It's it's not some, I just feel like Jesus is telling me to do, I mean, that's Maybe, but it's usually things that are pretty obvious, like get up, get a job, provide. That's, that's simple things, right? We, a lot of times we want to spiritualize things like, I don't know what the Lord is calling me to do, and it's usually that simple, boring step. Be, be, be uh, faithful wherever he's got you planted. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there, my servant will be also. And I love this. If anyone serves me, The Father, the Father will honor him. You know, it's interesting to me that verse verse 25 is found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the Gospels contain the life of Jesus, and each one has different things in them. Some of them overlap, but this verse is found in all of them. Okay, it's found in Matthew 16, 24 through 28, Mark 8, 34 through 38, and I'm going to, look, I'm, I'm going to read Luke 9, verse 20, starting with verse 23. It says, And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, what? Daily. Daily. And follow me. For whoever, here it is, would save his life, or whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, or whoever hates his life, for my sake will what? Save it, right? What does that mean? What does that mean to hate your life? Well, if you love your life in this world, this is what it means. There is a type of life, a kind of life, that is opposed to Jesus. We're all actually born living that life. It's a, it's a life that resists Jesus' rule. It's a self-centered, self-serving life. It's a life that says, Jesus, I don't want you messing around with my life or trying to tell me what to do. I got this. I want to be in control. Now, let me ask you all this. How many of you guys have been in control and wished you hadn't been? Can I get a, a, a witness? I I don't know. I've learned so many times I have been in control of my, or thought I was in control of my life. <laughs> control is, is an illusion because God is in control of all things. I'm just resisting his control when I ch- choose to do it my way. But Jesus says a person like that who has been me before I was saved and can be me even when I choose to let the old nature live. He says, if you live like that, you're going to be like a seed that remains alone. In other words, you will live an unfruitful life. 
You will live an unproductive life. I meant to do that. I meant to do that. With regards to eternity, and in the end, you're going to lose everything. You will lose everything and experience eternal destruction. That's what he's saying here. But it doesn't have to be that way for anybody. But if you hate your life in this world, if you come to a point in your life where you're sick and tired of being in control, you're sick of being in rebellion to God, you're tired of being the captain of your ship, and you see that your ship has been shipwrecked, and if you will bring your life to Jesus, you'll bring your dreams, your fame, your fortune, your comforts, your control, your right to say what you do with your life. And you lay it at his feet and crucify it and say, you do with it whatever you want, Lord. He says that is what it means to hate your life. I'm tired of me. No more of me. I want you. You see the difference? Loving my life is protecting me, being, the, being me and me and me. Being, <laughs> hating your life is being done with me, crucifying me. But you know, that's something that doesn't happen easily, does it? Does it, Kelly? Mm -mm. it's, It's not easy. Carrying your own cross is not for sissies. And here are five truths about the cross that I tend to forget. Five truths. Number one, the cross is painful. Sometimes I forget that, that the cross is not meant to be comfortable. Crucifixion was one of the most horrifying and excruciating ways to die. Oftentimes a victim, now we need to get this because this is a picture of what it's like for us to die. Oftentimes a victim would hang on the cross in torment for days, suffering from their physical and psychological misery, wanting to just be done. You know what? That's what it feels like sometimes. Isn't that what it feels like sometimes when you're dying to sin? When you're dying to yourself? Children, how many children we got in here under the age of 10? Put your hands in the. You can raise, that's okay. If you feel like you're a child, raise your hand. You know, you got brothers and sisters. You come home and go in the cookie jar, and there's one cookie left. And whose cookie is that? Your stomach's telling you it's your cookie. You deserve that cookie. But what is the word of God saying? <laughs> Share it? No, that's not. Okay, whoever said eat it, that is not the word of God. We need to get you in the word of God now. That's still your stomach talking. Jesus says that that's not where life is. Jesus says life is when you die to what you want so that others can live. That's what Jesus says. And your stomach don't like that. But when you believe the word of God above your stomach, children, then you take the cookie. Get her a cookie. (laughs) You take the cookie Do you want this? No. Here. No. You give the cookie, trusting that life is going to come from death if you do it in the name of Jesus. 
Now, that's the key. There's a lot of people who die for other people. But in, in some ways, when we die apart from dying for Jesus, his name, we're just dying so that we'll look good. Okay? But in this case, you're dying so that, th- that your brother or sister can see Jesus. And hopefully they'll do the same for you later down the road. Now, as we get older, the cookies get a little bigger, don't they? And we, we can often crave things that have stronger holds on us that lead to greater forms of destruction. It can be money, power, prestige, greed, lust of the flesh. And as we resist and crucify them, man, it can be extremely painful. Why? Because the flesh, write this down, the flesh doesn't want to die and it doesn't die easily. Your flesh, that nature in you that you were born with that is against God, doesn't want to die, and it doesn't die easily. I, you know, in my own walk with Christ, since I've been a young child, through my teenage years, boy, whoo, through my 20s when I thought I knew everything, through my 30s when I thought I knew everything, through my 40s when I know I know nothing now, <laughs> my flesh has had to be crucified, and it's been painful. And sometimes it feels like my body is screaming. You guys understand what I'm talking about? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're not resisting yourself, okay? If screaming, feed me, satisfy me. And you know what the nails are? You know what the nails are that keep it on the cross? The word of God. No, God said this will kill me. I'm putting you to death. Your flesh is seeking to put you to death. So Jesus isn't wanting you to to do something, just live some morbid life. He's trying to put to death in you that which is trying to put to death, to put you to death. But number one, we need to understand that the cross is painful. Number two, we need to understand that the cross is shameful. There are times when following Jesus will bring shame to your name. If you are truly following Jesus, there's going to be times that you, people look at you and give you that kind of sideways look like, and we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be surprised by this because Jesus himself was despised and rejected and humiliated by the very ones he came to save. There are times, if, if we're truly following Jesus, that we will be misunderstood, we will be falsely accused, and even ostracized. The cross is shameful. Number three, the cross is continual. This is something that I didn't understand when I first came to Christ. When I first came to Christ, there was that initial death to myself, which was a true death. I surrender all, Lord. But then something rose back up into me. And for the disciple of Christ, we need to understand that we are called to die on a daily basis. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 31 says, I die daily. In the verse verse we read earlier, Jesus says, take up your cross daily, day after day. It can be simple daily acts too. Listen, I used to think it was like somebody coming in and holding a gun to my head and saying, do you believe in Jesus? And I'm just like, yes, I do, and then it's over. But that's not how God allows the cross to put us to death usually. It's these simple things. You know, like going to the mall with your wife and shopping. Can I get a witness on that, men? Those round things with coats hanging, those are, those are crosses in my life. It's just like you walk in, it's like, oh, 
And everything slows down, right? No, right? Everything just kind of, I'm going to go out here and sit on the bench. When you see men sitting on the bench out there, they are on their cross, I promise you. It can also be putting uh, things that you like to death in order to do what God's called you to do. For, I, I think I told you this back when we were at Merriman, but I had to die to watching football for nine years to mess up my own kids so I could spend time with my own kids. I had to, to sacrifice that, put that on the altar, because it was getting in the way of my attention to be able to raise my kids. Also, it may mean that you, you take a lesser job or lesser pay or less prestige in order that you could be with, do what you need to do in order to do what God has called you to do. It's usually simple little things that we, we're always looking for that, that major big thing, but usually it's just those little things day after day. And our flesh doesn't want to stay dead. It's kind of like one of them, them movies, you know, that you're watching and, and there's the, the person's trying to get away, right, and they, they finally knock the thing down, like in the Terminator or uh, Sleeping with the Enemy or, or a zombie movie, you know, and the thing is dead, and they go over to it, and what happens? <laughs> no, you're supposed to be dead, you know, that type of thing. I don't know why I did that. So <laughs> something happens to the character, and they get back to life. That is what our flesh is like, though, isn't it? That is exactly what our flesh is like. And Jesus says, you need to get ready to die daily. Number four, the cross is a decisional, is decisional. See, I'm trying to do painful, shameful, continual, decisional. See that? Okay. The cross is decisional. You have to make a decision to do this. Now, the reason we decide to do this is because Jesus himself made the decision to die. He says, nobody is forcing me to do this. I'm doing it out of my free will. And in the same way, Jesus is not going to force any of us to die. When Jesus laid down on the cross, he did it voluntarily. And he is not pulling your hand, making you lay your hand down. That is something that we all have to come to a point in where we decide, you know what, I willingly die for you because you died first for me. And we must embrace, willingly embrace death. Otherwise, we will be, if we don't do it willingly, we will be like the thief on the cross who was cursing the entire time, thinking he deserved better than this, right? And that's not the kind of disciples that Jesus is wanting to produce. And number five, we need to remember that the cross is profitable. We've got to remember this. The cross is profitable for those who die in the right way, who die willingly. Jesus, again, is not calling us to a mindless life that we live a self-inflicted, tortured life. We don't need to try to make our own crosses. God will bring them to us. But he wants to put, again, to death in us the very things that are putting, seeking to put us to death. The very things that hinder us from loving God, loving one another, 
and living lives that are profitable for the kingdom of God. We die daily that we might live. Now, wanted to know, you know, right this part of my message, I've got a note here that says, do you want to know some things that I die to daily? I'm asking you. Okay. Uh, I'm going to share these things. And there's a, there's a, I, sometimes you want to be careful what you share because then you'll be looking for it and go, yeah, there it is right there, okay? <laughs> um, but I'm going to do it anyway. So number one, I have to die to being right, even when I'm wrong. Being right, even when I'm wrong. You know when you're in that discussion with that person? And you're right going into it. But as you get into that conversation, you're like, wait, I'm wrong. My temptation is to stay right, even when I'm wrong, to walk in pride, which is not healthy. I have that temptation. So what, is, what puts that to death? Humility. Because my flesh hates to be wrong. But when I say, you know what? I'm wrong. You're right. Please forgive me. Humility puts that one to death. Another one is believing that I'm omniscient. Believing that I know what you're thinking. Even though you haven't told me, I know your motives. I know why you did that or why you didn't do that, why you were not at church or why you were not here or there. Does anyone struggle with that? Okay. All right, I know that that's not true because not everyone's hands up, right? You know, it's kind of, but we've got to understand that there's more than one voice speaking to us. We have our voice inside. Then there is demonic voices speaking to us that have been crushed and destroyed by Jesus. But they're speaking to us. The enemy taps on our shoulder, try to get you mad, us mad at each other, and try to destroy the work of what Christ is doing. So I, I have to die to be believing that I'm omniscient. And, and the last one is, it's not the only one, but the last one I'm going to share is that I believe I'm the only one who's suffering. You know, there ain't nobody got it as bad as me right now. You know? Now, if, in, if there's anyone in here that is not suffering or struggling with anything in their life, would you please stand up right now? Because you will be once you stand up. <laughs> Look around. We all are struggling. All of us have issues in our life. But sometimes... I think I'm bleeding to death when all I really have is a paper cut. There are people around us in this room who really are bleeding. And you know what the answer to me getting off of that sometimes? Now, if I'm really bleeding, I need to, to allow others to minister to me. But the answer to putting that to death is, um, is to give myself away and to seek those who are bleeding. There is uh, sometimes the best therapy is to get our eyes off ourselves and to give ourselves away. So if you're a disciple and you are seeking for motivation to lay your, your life down, the first motivation is to look at Jesus and to realize that he first laid his life down for us. That has got to be the first motivation. That's not the only one, but that's got to be the first. He died for us so that we would live for him. And secondly, I want to ask you a couple questions. Who are you dying for? Who are you dying for? that will never thank you? Who are you dying for that will never thank you? Or who has died for you 
that you've never thanked. It goes both ways. Who has laid down their life for you so that you could hear and receive the gospel? Well, let me tell you someone who has laid down their life for me, other than Jesus, and he didn't even know he did it. His name was Adoniram Judson. Now, Adoniram Judson is the, the missionary that we named our son after. And he was born in, in 1788. His father was a pastor, and it was evident to all that Adoniram was a, a child prodigy because at the age of three, he learned how to read in one week. His mother taught him how to read in one week. At age 16, he was enrolled at Brown University as a sophomore, and he graduated three years later at the top of his class. Long story short, he lost his faith, faith in college but came back to the Lord, and when he did, he dedicated himself to the Lord and wanted to go out and be a missionary. Two and a half years later, while preparing to enter the mission field in Asia, Adoniram met a young lady by the name of Anne Hasseltine, and he asked her father for her hand in marriage, and this is the letter he wrote. I want you to listen to this. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you could consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death, can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteous brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall be renowned to her, from her Savior, from, from the heathen, heathens that were saved through her means, from eternal woe and despair. That is the letter he wrote to her father. And her father said, I'll let her decide. She said yes. And long story short, on July 13, 1813, they arrived in Burma to begin their ministry. Adoniram spent 37 years there. It was six years before he had his first convert. He translated the entire Bible into the Burmese dialect, which is still used today. But it wasn't easy. During his time there, he was captured by the Burmese government because they thought he was a spy, a British spy. He was held in a bamboo uh, death camp for two years, uh, tied up while his wife tried to get him set free. He gets freed, and his wife and, and young, now two-year-old baby, die of smallpox uh, because of, of the cost of what it took to, uh, to, to live in Burma during that time. During his time, he lost... Not only this wife, but another wife, and he lost seven of his 13 children. And after that, he battled with depression, deep, deep depression. Made him question, is all this real? What have I done with my life? But, but God is gracious, and he gave him his faith. He, he didn't leave him. He walked through 
with Adoniram through this. And it, he ended up dying on April 12th in, a, in a, a ship and was buried in the Indian Ocean. And you say, well, what does this have to do with you, James? Well, because Adoniram laid down his life, for a country called Burma. Many of you know that I'm, my dad's from Burma. More missionaries came in 1899 and, and went into an area called the Chin State. Now, if you've ever been to my house, you know that the, the road I live on is Chin Hills Lane. It's named after the area that my father came from. Burma is 80% Buddhist, but the area that my father grew up in was primarily Christian because of these missionaries. So he heard the gospel in Burma, came to America in 1958 on a medical scholarship, met my mother at Grady Memorial while he was attending Emory, that she was a believer. They got married, raised me and my children in the gospel. So my faith is partly because Adoniram had the faith to lay his life down over 200 years ago to go to a country that my father would eventually hear the gospel, and I am affected by it. And now I stand before you and preach the same gospel that was preached 200 years ago. But you know what's even cooler than that? Is I've gone back to Burma and preached the gospel. You just never know who is going to be affected by your life if you lay it down. If Adoniram was a tree... Rather, if he was a piece of corn, I would be one of the kernels in that stalk. So let me end with this question that I began with. What are you dying for? We have no idea who will be affected now and in the future by how we answer that question. Jesus wants to remind us that he was willing to die for us, that we might be willing to die to us, and live for him. It will, it will require that we all die to ourselves, carry our own crosses. It will be painful, shameful, continual, decisional, but in the end, it will be eternally profitable. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Let's pray.